Today on Lawfare Noble. Last week, the Senate held confirmation hearings for Supreme Court nominee Ketanji Brown Jackson. Though the questioning was largely substantive, we cut this episode down to include just the national security law questions. Judge Jackson, we've heard criticism from some of your previous work representing detainees at Guantanamo Bay. In fact, for years, we've heard criticisms leveled against lawyers who have provided Guantanamo detainees with legal representation. This criticism misses one critical point. The right to counsel is a fundamental part of our constitutional sentence system, even for the most unpopular defendants. I want to thank Senator Graham, who served as an Air Force lawyer for decades, for offering his perspective yesterday. He said, and I quote, The fact that you're representing Gitmo detainees is not a problem with me, Senator Graham said. Everyone deserves a lawyer. You're doing the country a great service when you defend the most unpopular people. And then Judge Roberts said during his confirmation hearing, it's it's a tradition of the American bar that goes back before the founding of the country that lawyers are not identified with the positions of their clients. The most famous example probably was John Adams, Chief Justice said who represented the British soldiers charged in the Boston Massacre. This sentiment is shared by lawyers across the political spectrum. I want to give you an opportunity to address this issue because it applies not just to Gitmo detainees, but to your work as a public defender uh, in terms of the wisdom, if acceptability of providing counsel in those cases and what impact it's had on you personally in terms of your rulings on the bench. Thank you, Senator. Um, September 11th was a tragic attack on this country. We all lived through it. We saw what happened, and um, there were many defenses, important defenses, that Americans undertook. There were Americans whose service came in the form of military action. My brother was one of those Americans, those brave Americans who um, decided to join the military to, to defend our country. There are others of you in this body who have military service, and I honor that, to protect our country. After 9-11, there were also lawyers who recognized that our nation's values were under attack, that we couldn't let the terrorists win by changing who we were fundamentally. And what that meant was that the people who were being accused by our government of having engaged in actions related to this under our constitutional scheme we're entitled to representation. We're entitled to be treated fairly. That's what makes our system the best in the world. That's what makes us exemplary. I was in the Federal Public Defender's Office when the Supreme Court, uh, excuse me, right after the Supreme Court decided that individuals who were detained at Guantanamo Bay by the president could seek a review of their detention. And those cases started coming in. And 
federal public defenders don't get to pick their clients. They have to represent uh, whoever comes in, and it's a service. That's what you do as a federal public defender. You are standing up for the constitutional value of representation. And so I represented, uh, as an appellate defender, some of those detainees. In the early days, the legal landscape was very uncertain. Uh, this had never happened before, not only the attack, but also uh, the uh, use of executive authority to detain people in this way. And there were a lot of questions that the court was asking. The Supreme Court had taken a series of cases to try to understand what are the limits of executive authority, which is important. All of our liberty is at stake if we don't get it right in terms of what the executive can do. The Supreme Court has recently reaffirmed that the Constitution does not get suspended in times of emergency. And so lawyers were trying to help the court to figure out, figure out what the executive's power was in this circumstance. And as an appellate defender, I worked on the habeas petitions of some of these detainees. My petitions were virtually identical because we had very little information. Part of the issue at the very beginning of these cases was that most of the factual information was classified. So defense counsel were appointed to represent these defendants. We had no facts. And I was making legal arguments about the circumstances. That is what gave rise to my representation. And I would just emphasize that that's the role of a criminal defense lawyer. Criminal defense lawyers make arguments on behalf of their clients in defense of the Constitution and in service of the court. Do the First Amendment free speech protections apply equally to conservative and liberal protesters? Yes, Senator. Okay. During an ABA panel on international law last year, Justice Breyer said that as a federal judge, quote, you can't do your job properly, quote, without considering international law and, quote again, in some cases, and it's a growing number, end of quote, and I assume a growing number of uh, opportunities to use international law. In 2018 op-ed, Justice Breyer said that, quote, the best way to preserve American values may well be to take account of what happens abroad, end of quote. Under what circumstances is it appropriate to consider international law when interpreting our Constitution? Thank you, Senator. Um, I have nothing but the highest uh, esteem and respect for um, my former boss, who I've spent the better, past, better part of the past couple decades calling my justice, having clerked for him. Um, but I do think that uh, the use of international law is very limited um, in in our scheme and in our judging. Um, there are certain cases in which it is relied upon um, 
where Congress directs or where the standards are such, the case involves a treaty, for example, and you have to interpret international law in order to be able to address it. Um, but there are very, very few cases, I think, in which international law plays any role, and certainly not in interpreting the Constitution. Do you think it's appropriate to look to international law when interpreting enumerated and unenumerated constitutional rights? Uh, no, Senator. Which specific constitutional clauses or rights has the Supreme Court held that can be interpreted by looking to international law? I'm not aware of any that um, are properly illuminated by reference to international law. Congress gave the Attorney General, quote, unquote, sole and unreviewable discretion to decide whether expedited removal would apply to, quote, an alien who has not been paroled or admitted to the United States. You decided a case called Make the Road New York where you seem to agree that Congress gave the Department of Homeland Security sole and unreviewable discretion to decide which illegal immigrants would be subject to expedited re removal. But you still went on to review the department's decision. In fact, you issued a nationwide injunction blocking the Department of Homeland Security from removing illegal immigrants who had been in the country for less than two years. In that hearing, you told us that if the text was clear, that ended the question. The law specifically says that Homeland Security, not the courts, was responsible for making the decision. Could you please explain why you believed a federal court could review something Congress called unreviewable? Thank you. Uh, Senator, for allowing me to address that opinion and my analysis with respect to it. Um, as you said, Make the Road was a uh, case involving a challenge to expedited removal, which was a, um, uh, a way in which Congress had given the authority to, Homeland, uh, uh, to the Department of Homeland Security um, to make a decision about how to deport people who are non-citizens. Prior to the challenge that I heard, the Department of Homeland Security, um, since it received that authority several decades ago, had decided that people who are in this country for up to 14 days and are found within 100 miles of the border are subject to expedited removal. The challenge that I heard involved the department's sudden shift to a determination that expedited removal would be applied to anyone who was found anywhere in the country and who had been here up to two years. Importantly, the challenge was not about the actual determination. The challenge was about the procedures that the agency undertook to make that determination. And so the statute said, as you 
rightly pointed out that the agency had sole and unreviewable discretion to decide. And in interpreting that, I took into account the language of that statute and the language of another statute that Congress has enacted to direct agencies with respect to the manner in which they exercise their discretion. So I said, and I believed, um, that sole meant that the Department of Homeland Security was the only agency who got to make this determination as to how many months a person should be in the United States. And unreviewable meant it was final. Once the agency decided, um, then there was no ability to review substantively their determination. And I should say that, importantly, the statute con that Congress enacted gave the agency the discretion to make this determination between zero and 24 months. There is a limit in the statute. It says Congress, you, I mean, uh, excuse me, Department of Homeland Security, you get to decide where between zero and 24 months uh, a person who's been in this country can be subject to expedited removal. So I read the statute. DHS gets the sole ability to make that decision. DHS makes that decision and it's final. What wasn't clear to me based on that language was whether Congress intended to preclude its procedural requirements for the exercise of agency discretion. And in the DC Circuit, there was precedent that indicated that even when Congress gives a great deal of discretion to an agency, procedural requirements may still apply. It is presumptive that the APA applies, meaning that an agency can't act arbitrarily and capriciously when it undertakes to exercise discretion. It has to do certain things in order to make the determination that Congress has given it. My I looked at those statutes. Oh, I'm sorry. No, no. <laughs> I looked at those statutes, and I considered the canons of construction that say that statutes should be read harmoniously, that, you're, that, that as a court, you're supposed to understand that Congress has directed, sometimes in more than one statute, what is supposed to happen. And so I read them together to mean that the court could still do what it almost always does uh, in a case involving a challenge to the manner in which an agency makes its decision. And in fact, I thought, as I say in my opinion, that Congress intended for the APA to imply because it had not excluded it, which it had done expressly in other parts of the, of the INA. It had not excluded it here. And it made sense to uh, require the agency to use its expertise. If Congress wanted the agency to act arbitrarily in picking a number, Congress could have done that. Congress said you can do it up to, to 24 months. It could have randomly picked a number. But it was giving it to the agency, I thought, and reasoned precisely because it wanted the agency to use its expertise, to do its research, and to figure out what amount of time is sufficient. And so it was important, I thought, um, to lay that out in the statute and 
I determined that both of those statutory directives of Congress should apply. What principles drove you to get involved with cases in such a, a difficult time in Guantanamo Bay? Well, thank you, Senator. And I, I do want to clarify, when I first started working on these cases, um, I was an assistant federal public defender. Um, the Supreme Court in 2004 issued two opinions that began this group of cases and these issues. And this was in the wake of the tragic and terrible attack on this country uh, in 9-11 and the executive's use of authority to detain uh, enemy combatants at Guantanamo Bay. In 2004, uh, the Supreme Court ruled that the executive did have the authority to make those detentions in one case. And then in another case, the Supreme Court ruled that anyone so detained could file a legal challenge. They had habeas rights. And as you know, habeas is in the Constitution. In 2005, I joined the Federal Public Defender's Office, and those cases started coming in. The requests from detainees asking for legal representation consistent with our constitutional scheme to have help to file their habeas petitions. This was very early in the days of these kinds of legal actions. There was a lot unknown about what these petitions could look like, what the arguments could be made and considered by the court, and, and perhaps most importantly, what the facts were related to any of these individuals, because almost everything was classified. So defense counsel was getting these, these people in with no information. I was in the appellate division of my office, and as an appellate defender, I worked on legal issues. I was paired with my, I was assigned by the federal public defender. I was an assistant federal public defender. And I was paired with a trial defender who attempted to do the fact gathering, who traveled to Guantanamo Bay. I never traveled there or anything like that. I worked on the law. And as you noted, the law was very uncertain. This was brand new. And people were trying to figure out what are the limits of executive authority in this context. We knew that the Constitution was not suspended, uh, even though we had this emergency. So what did that mean with respect to these individuals? I filed as a federal public defender. Um, I was assigned to work on four cases. And I filed almost identical petitions because what you're doing, especially when you have no facts, is just preserving legal arguments for your clients. That is consistent with what lawyers do. Um, and then um, you mentioned private practice. So I went into private practice in, I believe it was 2007. And by that time, lots of private practices around the country had started taking on these cases because there were lots of people who needed representation. And so pro bono practices were receiving requests, um, usually through nonprofits. And 
one of the individuals that I had represented as a defender ended up being assigned to my firm, unbeknownst to me. So I arrive at my firm and the partners realized that this same person um, was someone that, according to the docket, I had previously represented and they asked if I would review some of his materials and continue the representation. That was the only person that I represented in the context of my <clears throat> private firm who was a detainee. Um, I worked on a couple of habeas briefs for judges and for um, a variety of, inst of, of nonprofits, including the Rutherford Institute, the Cato Institute, and the Constitution Project, um, who were all interested in making arguments to the Supreme Court that was considering these very novel legal issues. Do you consider 9-11, you said, a terrible, tragic event? Would you consider it an act of war? Yes, Senator. Okay, I would too. I think it was an act of war by al-Qaeda and associated groups against the people of the United States. So as you rightfully are proud of your service as a public defender and you represented Gitmo detainees, which is part of our system, I want you to understand and the nation to understand what's been happening at Gitmo. What's the recidivism rate at Gitmo? Senator, I'm not aware. It's 31 percent. How does that strike you? Is that Any, high, low, and, about and right? I don't, I don't know how it strikes me overall. You know how it strikes I, me? It strikes me. It's terrible. Yes, that's what I was going to say. Okay, good. We found common ground. Of the 229 detainees uh, released from Gitmo, of 729 released, 229 have gone back to the fight. Here's some of the notables. Uh, former Gitmo detainee Zakir was named the interim defense minister of Afghanistan. I don't know exactly what his job is today, but during the transition, they made him the defense minister and he was in Gitmo. Of the five men we released from Gitmo as part of prisoner swap for Sergeant Bergdale, Here's, what, here's where they're at. Mohammed Fazal was appointed Deputy Minister of Defense. Noor was appointed Acting Minister of Borders and Tribal Affairs. Waziki was appointed as Acting Intelligence Director. Care, again, Acting Minister of Information, Culture, Defense. Omar was appointed as new Governor of the Southeastern Province of Coast. These were five people that we had in our control they're now helping the Taliban run the country. Would you say that our system in terms of releasing people needs to be re-looked at? Senator, what I'd say is that that's not a job for the courts in this way. That um, As an American, but, does that bother you? Well, obviously, Senator, any... Um, repeated criminal behavior or repeated attacks, acts of war, bother me as an yeah, American. Well, it, it bothers me. While I will not hold it against you, nor should I, the fact that you represent Gitmo detainees, I think it's time to look at this system new, folks. When 31% of the people are going back to fight to kill Americans and <clears throat> now running the Taliban government, we have gone wrong somewhere. Uh, are we still at war? 
Um, so the AUMF, the authorization for military force, is still in effect. Congress has authorized uh, the use of force against people in, um, in this way. But do you personally believe that al-Qaeda, ISIS-type groups are still at war with us? I think, yes. I mean, I think we... So we're still in a state of war with certain elements of radical Islam to this very day? I believe that's documented, yes. Okay. Now, what's the process to determine whether one's an enemy combatant under our law? Well, um, I believe that the executive branch makes an assessment um, of whether or not someone is taken up arms against the United States somewhere in the world related to all of this. Okay. So it's an executive branch function to determine whether or not this person qualifies as an enemy combatant. Well, I believe that they make it under current law. Under current law, um, I believe that determination is made by the executive branch, and the person is put into, is detained, um, and then the question becomes whether they are able to bring some sort of legal challenge to that. They have determination. a habeas right. Yes. Okay. So the law is that the executive branch determines if you're an enemy combatant. And under our law, you can appeal that decision to a federal court through habeas. Is that correct? I believe that's correct. Okay. Is it your view that we can hold enemy combatants as long as they're a threat to the United States? I believe that's what the Supreme Court has determined. Okay. Did you argue that that should not be the case before in an amicus brief? I'm trying to think. I had two amicus briefs that I worked on, or three technically, but two different cases. We'll Um, we'll have another visit tomorrow. Yes. Go back and check. Yes. There are people still held at Gitmo today. Do Do you understand that? Yes. Okay. What system is in place regarding their future? I am not aware of the system right now. Um, I'm not sure exactly what you mean. Well, let me tell you what it is. Yes. There's a periodic review process made up of an interagency where they go through the files of these folks and they determine whether or not they still present a threat to the United States or the world at large. And I think it's six months, maybe a year. But that goes on at least on an annual basis and if there's a determination that this person still represents a threat to the United States, uh, they're continued to be confined. That's the way the system works. Are you okay with that? As a policy matter, Senator, I'm, I'm not speaking to my uh, views. That, that's, my understanding is that the periodic review yeah. system is an executive branch determination of whether or not they're going to continue to hold people that they... Does that make sense to you as a way to deal with these detainees? 
Senator, I'm not in a position to speak to the policy or the discretion of the executive branch regarding how they're going to handle detainees. The reason I mention it is because in one of the briefs you argued that the executive branch doesn't have that option. That if, we, if you had had your way, the executive branch could not do periodic reviews about the, the danger the detainee presents to the United States. They would have to make a decision of trying them or releasing them. Is that not accurate? Respectfully, Senator, it was not my argument. Really? I was filing an amicus brief on behalf of clients, including the Rutherford Institute, the Cato Institute, and the Constitution Project, who... What, when, you, when you sign on to a brief, does it not become your argument? It does not, Senator. If, oh, you, wow. are, if you are an attorney and you are representing a client in amicus... Well, is that your position? Uh, when you were in private practice? I mean, you, you sign on to this brief making this argument, but you say it's not your position. I mean, why would you do that if it's not your position? Why would you take a client that has a position like that? Now, this is voluntary. Nobody's making you do this. Oh, Senator, I would, I would refer you to the same sorts of statements that Chief Justice Roberts made when he came before the committee, which is that lawyers represent clients. I, I, I get that. I, I'm not holding the client's views against you. The, like the, the, the people you represent at Gitmo, they deserve representation. But this is a amicus brief where you and other people try to persuade the court to change policy. The policy I described is a periodic review. If the court had taken the position argued in the brief that you signed upon, we'd have to release these people or try them. And some of them, the evidence we can't disclose because it's classified, you're putting an America in an untenable position. This is not the way you fight a war. If you tried to do this in World War II, they'd run you out of town. We hold enemy combatants as long as they're a threat. There's no magic passage of time that you got to let them go. So my question is very simple. Do you support the idea, did you support then the idea that indefinite detention of an enemy combatant is unlawful? Respectfully, Senator, when you are an attorney and you have clients who come to you, whether they pay or not, you represent their positions before the court. I, I, I'm, sure, I'm sure everybody at Gitmo wants out. No, I got that. This is an amicus brief, and I, I just don't understand what you're saying, quite frankly. I'm not holding it against you because you represented a legal position I disagree with. I mean, that happens all the time. I'm just trying to understand what made you join this cause. And you say somebody hired you, but did you feel okay in adopting that cause? I mean... When you signed on to the brief, were you not advocating that position to the court? Senator, as uh, a judge now, okay. in order to determine the lawfulness or unlawfulness of any particular issue, I need to receive briefs and information making positions on all sides. No, I, I got what a judge is all about. I, listen, I'm not asking you to decide the case in front of me right here. I'm asking me to explain a position you took 
as a lawyer regarding the law of war, and I am beyond confused. I know what you said in your brief. Whether I agree with it or not, it's not the point. I just want you to understand that it's important for all of us to know where you were coming from. If that brief had been accepted by the court, it would be impossible for us to fight this war because there's some people going to die in jail and get mowed and never go to trial for a lot of good reasons because the evidence against them is so sensitive we can't disclose it to the public that we're not charging them with a crime. What we're doing is saying that you engage in hostile activities against the United States, that you are an enemy combatant under our law, and you will never be released as long as you're a danger until the war is over or you're no longer a danger. That's the difference between fighting a crime and a war. Uh, did you ever accuse in one of your habeas petitions the government of acting as war criminals for holding the detainees That, that I'm, I'm, the holding of the detainees by, by our government, that we were acting as war criminals. Senator, I don't remember that accusation, but I will say that... Uh, Do you believe that's true, that America was acting as war criminals in holding these detainees? Senator, the Supreme Court held that the executive branch has the authority to detain people who are designated as enemy combatants um, for the duration of the hostilities. And what I was doing in the context of the habeas petitions at this very early stage in the process was making allegations to preserve issues on behalf of my clients. A habeas petition is like a, a complaint that lawyers make allegations. You know, I've been a lawyer too, but I don't think it's necessary to call the government a war criminal in pursuing charges against a terrorist. On the issue of Guantanamo, there are currently 39 Guantanamo detainees remaining. The annual budget for Guantanamo is $540 million per year, which means each of these detainees uh, is being held at the expense of 12 or $13 million per year. If they would be incarcerated at Florence, Colorado, the supermax prison, federal prison, the amount would be dramatically, dramatically less. Since 9-11, nearly 1,000 convicted in the United States on terrorism charges. Since 2009, with the beginning of the Obama administration, the recidivism rate of Guantanamo detainees released is 5 percent. Section 230 of the Communications Decency Act uh, provides uh, a degree of immunity for tech companies operating in the space of being uh, online interactive service providers. Um, it immunizes them, uh, them from certain causes of action that would otherwise um, apply against them. Would it be within Congress's authority to condition the receipt and, uh, and availability of Section 230 immunity? on those online interactive service providers operating as a public forum that is not discriminating on the basis of, of viewpoint or, or the, the, the viewpoint of those posting on them. Would that be within our authority? Senator, I can't um, comment on a particular issue about whether or not it is um, constitutional or, or not, but the criteria that you 
identify the, the, it would be relevant, I think, as to whether or not the government is uh, seeking to regulate along uh, viewpoint lines under the First Amendment. That is something that is um, generally impermissible. As a lower court judge, you were generally bound by the Supreme Court and the D.C. Circuit's precedents. Uh, that certainly won't be the case if you are confirmed to the Supreme Court. The Supreme Court can overturn its own precedents. That's why I found your analysis in Committee on the Judiciary versus McGahn instructive. In that case, you had a precedent, Committee on the Judiciary v. Myers, that had already confronted the issues you faced. However, it was another district court decision, and you were not bound by it. You nonetheless followed that precedent. Why did you find that opinion so persuasive? Well, Senator, in um, the law, there are different kinds of precedent, and by that I mean um, there's vertical precedent, which is what people are most familiar with. There are... Um, cases that are handed down by higher courts, the appellate court, the Supreme Court, and those bind the lower courts so that even if you disagree with them, you have to follow them because they're binding precedent. But there's also horizontal precedent. It, it too is about maintaining consistency and predictability in the rule of law. And what that means is when you are in a district, there are many judges. And if someone else in your district has handled a case that comes out or that involves the same issues and comes out in a certain way, you as the second judge have to contend with that ruling. You can't ignore the fact that there is precedent in your district that handles a case in a particular way. And with respect to the McGann case, the precedent wasn't just close, it was nearly identical. The, the Myers case involved the former White House counsel and the argument by the executive that the former White House counsel had absolute immunity uh, in uh, with respect to a request by the legislature that she provide testimony. My case involved a former White House counsel who was claiming absolute immunity at the request of the executive in response to a legislative subpoena. In both cases, not only was the absolute immunity issue on the table, but in both cases, the same threshold issues mm -hmm. about whether or not there was jurisdiction um, in the court because the legislature had standing or didn't have standing, which, is, which was the argument that was being made. The same question about whether the court could hear a dispute between the legislature and the executive branch, all of those issues had previously been considered by my colleague in the district court. And he wrote an extensive, I'm talking about Judge Bates, he wrote an extensive opinion analyzing each of the issues. And so at a minimum, as the second judge dealing with these exact same issues, I had to look at what he did and decide. Was it persuasive? Did I agree? And I did. 
Just to make it clear, as a federal public defender, you were assigned to represent Guantanamo detainees. Is that right? That is correct, Senator. And then while at Morrison and Forrester, you also did pro bono work for Guantanamo, Guantanamo detainees. Were you assigned to do that work as well? So there was one detainee who I had represented as a federal public defender who was brought into my firm's practice, unbeknownst to me, uh, and when I arrived at the firm, the attorneys who were working on that case recognized that I had previously been a lawyer who had represented this particular detainee and asked if I would help with his habeas petition at that stage. I think you clarified that earlier today. And you served as counsel of the record on amicus briefs related to detention. I think that was brought out today. Yes. Uh, were you working on behalf of detainees at that point, or were you working on behalf of other groups or individuals? I was working on behalf of other groups or individuals in, in, with respect were they to retired judges. Um, I, yes, there were, there were three briefs in total, two different cases. And um, one of the briefs that I filed was on behalf of 20 retired federal judges, including one who was a partner at my firm at the time uh, and who wanted to make a particular argument to the court concerning the detention process. And these were judges that were nominated by various presidents. So it must have been a diverse group, and they asked you to do the brief. And they did, yes. So as part of your work at the law firm, a responsibility of your employment, you were um, assigned to work with this diverse group of retired judges and to represent conservative or libertarian organizations such as the Cato Institute and the Rutherford Institute to advocate their views. Yes, the other um, two briefs that I filed were at the cert stage and then at the merit stage of a case that was eventually um, mooted, but my clients in those cases were a diverse group of organizations, including the Cato Institute, the Rutherford Institute, and the Constitution Project. You said you're not an activist judge. You said, am I right? Yes. You said judges are not politicians. That right? is true. And judges should stay in their lane. Y yes, sir. Tell me again what you mean by stay in your lane. What I mean is that in our system of government under the Constitution, uh, we have a separation of powers. And each branch has their own sphere of responsibility. Um, to say stay in, in, in your lane is the shorthand that I'm using for indicating that judges should not be policymakers, that those uh, responsibilities are left to the elected branches, and that uh, judges are to um, interpret the law, not make the law. And I use it to refer to the part of my methodology that is mindful of the constraints on judicial authority. Can you just share for a couple of minutes what you believe the role or responsibility of the Supreme Court might be in protecting this fundamental right to vote and, by extension, our democracy? Thank you, Senator. 
um, the, the right to vote is protected by our Constitution. Um, the Constitution makes clear that um, no one is to be discriminated against in terms of their exercise of uh, voting. And the Congress has um, used its constitutional authority to enact many statutes uh, that are aimed at uh, voting protection. Um, there are also um, there are also laws that um, relate to ensuring that there is uh, not only voting access, but ensuring that that uh, there isn't fraud in terms of of voting. Um, these con concerns are. Um, embodied by various laws and provisions, and there are disputes at times over um, the concerns and the balances that, that are being made uh, across the country relating to the exercise of voting. And those disputes come to court and uh, then eventually to the Supreme Court that interprets uh, the laws that pertain to the to, to the fundamental right to vote, which, as you say, the Supreme Court has um, acknowledged is a fundamental right. Congress granted DHS sole and unreviewable discretion to determine which illegal immigrants should be deported. This means DHS's decision was unreviewable by a federal judge, and any attempt to challenge DHS's decision should have been dismissed by the court, and yet you did the very opposite. You didn't dismiss it. You inexplicably construed the law to permit a judicial challenge to DHS's immigration decision, despite the plain language of the statute. The D.C. Circuit, where you sit, reversed you. It noted that it could hardly imagine a more definitive expression of congressional intent than the one in the law at issue. And it questioned how you could have come to any other conclusion based on the text of the statute. So I'd like to know what was ambiguous about the immigration law that we enacted and we explicitly stated that DHS's decision was unreviewable, what more could we possibly have said or have made clear that you were not authorized to review DHS's decision? Thank you, Senator. When Congress strips the court of jurisdiction, Congress in many cases, does so explicitly. It says something other than sole and unreviewable. It says things like, no court shall hear, there's no jurisdiction to consider. There are ways that Congress clarifies that judges have no authority or no jurisdiction to hear a particular case. The DC Circuit considered jurisdiction uh, with respect to this 
statute and this uh, dispute and determined that the court did have jurisdiction. And the question was whether there was a cause of action okay. to proceed. What I determined in looking at the statutes that issue in th this particular case is that sole and unreviewable meant that DHS had the sole uh, power to make a decision right. about... I not to interrupt you, my time is going to run out, and I want to be respectful of getting you out of here. Let's talk a bit about limitations on power. Our Constitution is a document that renounces monarchism and instead establishes a republic. Uh, you, in uh, opinion that has been widely cited made the observation that presidents are not kings. What does that mean, and what are some of the most important bulwarks in our constitutional system against the abuse of executive power, against tyranny? Thank you, Senator. Our constitutional scheme, the design of our government, is erected to prevent tyranny. The framers decided, after experiencing monarchy, tyranny, and the like, that they were going to create a government that would split the powers of a monarch in several different ways. One was federalism. It was vertical. They would split the powers between the federal government and states. Another was to prevent the federal government from itself becoming too powerful, from having all of uh, the authorities, from having legislative, executive, and judicial authority concentrated in one place. So the Constitution, in its design, puts the legislative authority in Article I and gives it to the Congress, the power to make laws. It puts the executive authority in Article II and gives it to the president, the power to execute the laws. And it puts the judicial authority, the power to interpret the laws in Article III and gives it to the court. The separation of powers is crucial to liberty. It is what our country is founded on and it's important as consistent with my judicial methodology, for each branch to operate within their own sphere. That means for me that judges can't make law. Judges shouldn't be policy makers. That's a part of our constitutional design and it prevents our government from being too powerful and encroaching on individual liberty. Thank you, Judge. I, I mentioned in my opening remarks that the court has played a vital role, constrained within its proper constitutional boundaries in the national process of making America in real life what America is in text. And reflecting on your experience as a public defender, a vital role in our justice system, let's talk a little bit about the Sixth Amendment and the role that the court played in ensuring that the Sixth Amendment is real in practice in the Gideon v. Wainwright decision. Can you uh, help 
all those who are tuned in right now to reflect upon that decision, what it means, what it says about the role of the court? Yes, Senator. Um, prior to Gideon versus Wainwright, people who could not afford lawyers were not entitled to lawyers under our system. So a person could be accused by the government of criminal behavior and would have to fend for themselves in court. They would have to make their own arguments. Someone who is not a lawyer would still be responsible for defending him or herself in front of a judge if the government brought charges. Earl Gideon was a criminal defendant from Florida, my home state, who had a handwritten petition. He complained that it wasn't fair under our constitutional scheme that protects and requires people to be tried. He said, I need help. I'm not a lawyer. I can't make these arguments. I think it's important for uh, uh, the protection of liberty to ensure that people are able to have counsel. And that handwritten petition made its way to the Supreme Court. And the justices read it, and they determined to take his case, and in the end decided that the protections of the Sixth Amendment, the right to trial, includes the right to appointed counsel so that everybody who is uh, accused of criminal behavior now has the right to an attorney. And that's very important. I mean, one of the things that I see or saw as a trial judge is that it was crucial for our justice system to have representation from both sides. It was the only way that a judge, it is the only way that a judge can really make fair determinations. And in cases, in, you know, we've heard a lot about my criminal cases. In every case, I'm getting, as a judge, arguments from the prosecution. I'm getting arguments from the defense counsel. I'm getting arguments or statements from probation in these criminal cases. And the work of a judge is to look at the facts and circumstances, hear the arguments of the parties, apply the law, and make a fair determination. And so having lawyers for criminal defendants aids in that process and benefits us all in our criminal justice system. I want to turn now to uh, the Fourth Amendment. I want to discuss with you the protections against unreasonable search and seizure. We discussed how the Constitution was a renunciation of monarchism and tyranny. It establishes core civil liberties, uh, one of which is the protection against unreasonable search and seizure. How will you approach Fourth Amendment case law, and can you uh, help those tuned in across the country uh, re remind them of what, for example, the principle of a reasonable expectation of privacy means in the context of Supreme Court jurisprudence? Thank you, Senator. The Fourth Amendment is one of the amendments in the Constitution that protects individual liberty by limiting what the government can do with respect to criminal processes. It 
restrains the government from engaging in unreasonable searches and seizures. And the Supreme Court has developed uh, a series of tests and uh, ways of evaluating whether any particular act by an officer in a case qualifies as an unreasonable search or seizure. Let me just say that um, this is the kind of area of uh, Supreme Court and uh, judicial review that is very fact specific because courts, in order to stay in our appropriate role, can't make policy about police behavior writ large. Can't just sort of look out into the universe and say, we have a constitution that says unreasonable searches and seizures, so let us tell you all what that means. That's not the way that courts operate. Under Article 3, courts can only hear individual cases and controversies and decide them. So every court, including the Supreme Court, is looking at unreasonable search and seizures in the context of a particular dispute where someone has had something searched by an officer in their house, they've been seized uh, under a particular set of facts, and they claim in the context of a lawsuit um, or in the context of defending themselves that there has been an unreasonable search or seizure. And so the court, case by case by case, looks at the facts and circumstances and decides. And I would say that this is, this is the kind of analysis that takes into account uh, a number of things, but one of the things um, in addition to understanding the facts and circumstances, is understanding what is meant in the Constitution by unreasonable search and seizure. There is case law that uh, the Supreme Court has developed that looks at whether or not something is an unreasonable search and seizure in part by analyzing whether there was a reasonable expectation of privacy uh, in that item, um, in that area. Is there a reasonable expectation of privacy in your house, for example? If a police officer were to come into your house, you, you would not be able to claim Fourth Amendment protection unless, says the Supreme Court, there was a reasonable expectation of privacy in your house. And the Supreme Court has determined whether there's a reasonable expectation of privacy, for example, in your house, by looking at what areas were protected at the time of the founding when uh, the words unreasonable searches and seizures were written into the Constitution. Lo and behold, something like your house, the court has determined, there is a reasonable expectation of privacy because that's what those terms meant back then. And so if a police officer were to come without a warrant, the court has said, in areas where there is a reasonable expectation of privacy, um, that would be an unlawful search. This is an area where the emergence of new technologies uh, makes it likely, I believe, that should you be confirmed, you will have to consider Fourth Amendment claims in light of circumstances that couldn't have been anticipated uh, at the time of the drafting of the Constitution, and indeed, 
constitutional interpretation has already evolved over time to adapt to the reality of new technologies. Uh, from phone booths, a uh, classic case in the late 1960s about whether a closed phone booth door demonstrates an expectation of privacy, to more recent case law involving geolocation data from cell phones. Uh, and I want to urge you, should you be confirmed, um, to remain vigilant about how the emergence of new technologies, the way that they become ubiquitous in our lives, the way that virtual spaces are increasingly akin to physical spaces, will require the court to consider very complex questions and to seek technical advice, because these are technologically complex questions. What is your view on how the court should seek such technical expertise, which may be, with all due respect, uh, beyond the training or experience of a justice or their clerk? Uh, and if, for example, one such method of seeking advice is through amici, what's the importance of understanding the provenance and origin and funding source of such briefs submitted to the court? Uh, could you please comment on those matters? Those will be my final questions for this round. Thank you, uh, Senator. One of the ways in which the court receives information other than directly from the parties in a case is through uh, a practice, an established practice of receiving uh, amicus briefs. Amicus is uh, a, a term for friend, friend of the court briefs. These are people who are not um, parties to the case who don't have that kind of interest in the case, but may have expertise or information or arguments that they wish the court to hear. Um, and I think that that would be the primary mechanism by which if the court were to um, uh, decide to hear a case concerning uh, a matter that involves some technical expertise, um, I, I would think that there might be amicus briefs uh, related to the technology, for example. Um, I have not looked at the court's rules. I would certainly want to discuss with, with um, the courts, uh, other justices, um, the ways in which determinations are made about which amicus briefs uh, are received and what disclosures are related to them. But the court does receive amicus briefs uh, in cases in order to inform itself uh, so that um, it can make uh, a, a decision related to the issues in a case. Should the Supreme Court overrule a precedent when it is clear to the justices that the precedent was wrongly decided? Thank you, Senator. Stare decisis, which is the principle uh, that um, the Supreme Court uses at the outset. It's the sort of background rule of uh, judicial um, maintenance of precedence in order to have predictability, stability uh, in the law is the kind of principle that the court begins with when it is asked to overrule or uh, revisit a precedent. And the court has developed certain factors that it looks at before it actually undertakes to 
reverse a precedent. One of those factors is the view that the precedent it's reconsidering is wrong, but that's not the only factor. The court also uh, determines, in addition to whether or not the, pre the prior precedent was egregiously wrong, the court has said, um, the court looks at whether there's been reliance on that prior precedent, whether the precedent is workable or has proven workable over time, whether the cases in the area uh, of the precedent have shifted such that the precedent itself is no longer on firm foundation, and whether there have been either new facts or a new understanding of the facts um, that give rise to a need to revisit the precedent. So it's not just um, a, a look at whether or not it's wrong, and it's important that the court take into account all of those factors because stare decisis, meaning uh, letting the precedent stand, is a very important pillar of the rule of law. When is it appropriate for a judge to impose a sentence enhancement under the guidelines? Thank you, Senator. The federal sentencing guidelines um, are crafted to assist courts in making sentencing determinations within the broad range that Congress prescribes for cases, for, for crimes. So in the typical case, a defendant is convicted of some crime um, in the federal system. They're usually very serious crimes. And Congress will say, judge, you can give that person a sentence anywhere between zero and 20 years, for example. The sentencing guidelines are designed to set out a series of factors that judges should be looking at when they decide what they're going to sentence that particular person to. And those factors will be things like, if this is a violent crime, does the person have a weapon? If this is a violent crime, was there any injury? And so the judge is looking at these facts, in many cases horrible facts, and calculating the guidelines based on what we call enhancements. Each one of those different characteristics or conditions is an enhancement. So you ask, when is it important to, um, to for, when it's appropriate? Well, the judge, judge has to calculate the guidelines in every case. That's how we start the process. But under the statutes, in addition to calculating the guidelines with all of those enhancements, the way our system now works is you determine what the guideline range of punishment is going to be, and then Congress says you look at a series of other factors in addition to the guideline range. And at the end of the day, the judges in the system now are choosing sentences based on both the consideration of the guidelines and also the consideration of the statutory factors that Congress has put forward. Have you ever declined to impose 
an enhanced sentence on a defendant because you disagreed with the enhancement as a policy matter? Thank you, Senator. Um, yes, and the reason is because of Supreme Court case law concerning um, the way in which the guideline system operates. The Supreme Court has um, determined in a case we discussed yesterday that the guidelines are no longer binding on judges, meaning um, the guidelines you calculate, but you don't have to stay in the guideline range anymore. That was um, the Supreme Court's Booker case. In, and I can't remember if it's in that case or in subsequent case law, but the Supreme Court has also made clear that when you are calculating the guideline range in the new system that we're in right now, judges are free, they, the Supreme Court has said, to decide in particular cases whether as a quote-unquote policy matter, they disagree with a particular enhancement. That is the state of the law. That is what the Supreme Court has said judges are permitted to do in cases. And so I have, in certain cases, given the way in which the guidelines are operating, the disparities that are created in cases, I have at times identified various enhancements that I have disagreed with as a policy matter because the Supreme Court has said that that's the authority of a sentencing judge in our system. Uh, explain the political question doctrine, and then what standards would you apply to determine whether a claim before you uh, implicates a political question? So the political question doctrine um, is a doctrine that relates to uh, the jurisdiction of the court. As I mentioned, um, the courts are in... Um, a particular branch of government, the judicial branch, that is limited in its power. The courts can't um, make policy. They can't reach out into the world and decide that certain things are good or bad and then address them. They have to wait for cases to come um, and decide them. And when a case comes, it has to be presenting a question of law for the court to answer it. If a person comes to the court and they ask the court to answer something that is properly in the province of Congress, if they ask a political question, then the court has to say, I'm sorry, that's not my role. So I had, for example, a case that involved um, uh, Yemeni citizens who um, I'm trying to get the facts exactly right, but they um, had relatives. They were, I think they were resident in the United States, and they had relatives in Yemen, a war-torn area. This is um, a few, few years ago. And they came to the court, me, asking if I could direct the administration to extract their relatives from Yemen that they wanted me to order um, the executive branch to send in troops and get their relatives out because it was um, 
obviously dangerous for their relatives to be in that country. And what I said in that circumstance is essentially, I don't have jurisdiction to do that because what you're asking me to do is a political question. That the question of when and where troops can be sent and who um, can be extracted from foreign governments belongs with the executive branch. And so you have to ask them. Um, and so I said, I have no jurisdiction. That's a political question doctrine. Um, and it's well established in, in our law. Have you heard of a case called uh, Make the Road versus McAleen? Make the Road in New York? Yes. Yeah, okay. Make the Road in New York, who are they? Um, Make the Road New York is a nonprofit that uh, represents um, various individuals in the sort of immigration law right. field. They're a nonprofit advocacy group for Im immigration issues. <clears throat> Did you know they received large donations from the Arabella Network and from George Source's Open Society Foundation Network? No. Okay. Well, they did. Uh, now, in that case, what was the issue? The issue in that case was a challenge to a change in administration policy concerning um, expedited removal, which is a uh, policy that Congress enacted mm -hmm. in order to um, expedite certain removals in the immigration system. Ordinarily, um, before expedited removal. Asylum cases do not fall in this category, right? Well, trust me on that because the statute says it doesn't. If a person who could otherwise be subject to expedited removal makes and has a credible fear of torture in their country, mm -hmm. they can be and can they make that determined, claim? Right. they can be determined right. uh, to qualify for regular removal yeah. rather than right. expedited removal. So expedited removal is a creature of Congress, folks. And if you've been here two years or less, the statute, the, the, the statute, I'm sorry, the statute. The statute would allow the administration and office to have expedited removal, avoiding a lot of the, the hurdles that would exist otherwise for people here two years or less. So in the Obama, uh, even Bush years, they did not look at it in terms of applying it to everybody. Some people coming by air got expedited removal, others didn't. The Trump administration decided to use the authority given to it by Congress to remove all eligible cases two years or less under the expedited removal statute. Is that a fair summary? Well, Senator, I would um, say, say it differently. Well, say it differently. All right. Um, the statute that you've put up indicates that Congress is giving the department, it, it says the attorney general, but now it's the department, right. the ability to determine what category of aliens. If you have two years or less. Yeah, 
but 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 importantly, um, the authority was it was not Congress saying two years or less. What Congress said is you agency have the authority to determine what category of persons between who, who have been here between zero and 24 months. Which is two be. years. Yeah. No, but what, <laughs> forgive so, me, Senator, I'm just, what I'm trying to explain is that the authority given to the agency was to determine what length they of had time. discretion to make that what, what length of time. It was not the authority to deport everyone who's been here for 24 months. It was the authority to determine what length of time a person has to be here in order to be subjected to expedited removal. Here's what the statute said. The Attorney General, which is actually the DHS Secretary, may apply clauses one and two of this subparagraph to any and all aliens described in subclass two as designated by the Attorney General, actually DHS. Such designation shall be in the sole and unrevealable discretion of the Attorney General and may be modified at any time. Now, I've been in this business for quite a while. What the Trump administration did was to use the discretion given to it by statute in a way different than prior administrations. This advocacy group, the Arabella-supported advocacy group, tried to strike it down. You rule for them. Here's what the D.C. Circuit Court said about your ruling. There could hardly be a more definitive expression of congressional intent to leave the decision about the scope of expanded removal within statutory bounds to the Secretary's independent judgment. The forceful phrase, sole and unreviewable discretion, buys exceptional terms. Such designation shall be in the sole and unreviewable discretion of the Attorney General and may be modified at any time. To those of us in the law writing business, I don't know how you could tell a judge more clearly that the administration, the agency in question, has discretion to do certain things within the statute. So this is an example to me, and you may not agree, where the plain language of the statute was completely wiped out by you. You reached a conclusion because you disagreed with the Trump administration, and the D.C. Circuit Court of Appeals said, as I've quoted just a minute ago, there could hardly be a more definitive expression of congressional intent to lead the decision about the scope of expedited removal within the statutory bounds to the Secretary's independent judgment. That, to me, is Exhibit A of activism. Senator, would you allow me to... Yes, please. Thank you. The statute and the circumstances that you reference are accurate insofar as that is what the statute says. It's not all of it. It doesn't describe the designation process that I was trying to articulate. And uh, it doesn't address the fact that Congress has another statute that is presumptively applied in agency cases to tell agencies how to exercise discretion. There's also DC Circuit case law that says 
that in addition to having that procedural statute be presumptive, even very clear uh, designations of authority to an agency may still be subject to Congress's Judge. other directions regarding Judge. how to exercise right. the discretion. Another hallmark of your work has been taking complex issues and making them accessible to the public. Uh, so much so that I actually referred to one of your opinions from a debate stage in Los Angeles saying, as a wise judge said, those were my words, I guess I was ahead of my time, uh, the president is not king in America, the law is king. I paraphrased it. That was a written opinion that you wrote that was over 65 pages uh, long, uh, relied extensively on Supreme Court and circuit uh, precedent. Uh, it was Committee on the Judiciary v. McGahn. And could you talk about really two things, the importance of having the law written in terms that are easy to understand by people? And then secondly, your opinion was actually a narrow one. Uh, it required Mr. McGahn to appear to testify, uh, but that said he remained free to assert any legally applicable privilege in response to the questions asked. So. What you did there was a narrow opinion. What, what role do you think that narrow rulings play in helping to maintain the legitimacy of the court? Why is it important to have plain language in orders? Thank you, Senator. Um, well, I'll start with the second first. Mm -hmm. I think that, um, you know, as, as we've been discussing, we have a rule of law in this country which... Um, requires a certain amount of predictability and stability in the law. Um, if there are big shifts uh, in terms of legal principles and doctrines and whatnot, um, it could lead to people uh, not understanding that judges are ruling on legal principles. It could lead to undermining public confidence, thinking that judges are uh, injecting their own policy preferences rather than following uh, the law in, in, in terms of their rulings. And so um, to further predictability, stability, there are many uh, doctrines in um, judicial practice. There's stare decisis, which is the principle that if something has already been decided, um, very similarly, you... Uh, at least if it, it may be binding on you if you're a lower court, but at least you have to contend with it um, because that is the law that was that existed before you got the case and you don't want to make a big shift. Um, and then there's also the principle that, um, you know, the understanding that when you are announcing uh, a, rulings, you are building on what exists before. And so not, so you don't want to make a big shift if you don't have to, because um, you, if you can find a way to rule incrementally in a more narrow way, it keeps the law uh, stable is a part of the proposition that I, that I mentioned before. Um, in McGann in particular, it was, um, it was a case in which there was a precedent directly on point from my district. It was not binding on me, but the exact same set of circumstances and arguments had been presented to another judge in my district. I believe it was something like 10 years prior to my case. And so we had law that governed the circumstance. And I looked at that, determined it was persuasive and that I should continue 
uh, the principles that had been laid down by, by in the prior case. Um, also, um, in accordance with those principles, um, the prior judge and I made the determination that when the president um, claims absolute immunity, um, the argument was that the person who had been subpoenaed by the legislature, a former employee of the White House, um, could could say that they had uh, immunity of some sort. In other words, it could have uh, invoke executive privilege in response to particular questions, but they couldn't say, I don't have to show up at all. And so the argument that was being made was when the House of Representatives issues a subpoena and says, show up on this day at this time to answer questions, um, does that person, can that person just ignore and, and say, I have immunity, I don't have to follow um, the law, in, in other words, respond to the subpoena, or do I have to show up and sit there and listen to the questions, and if there are things that I believe I can't answer because they're, they're privileged, then you invoke the privilege. Mm -hmm. And the prior case had said, in this narrow way, you have to show up. You don't necessarily have to give the information. That's uh, determined on a question-by-question -question basis, but you have to show up. Mm -hmm. um, and that's w what I held in that case as well. And, it, and it's important to be clear in your rulings so that people understand that mm -hmm. judges are, are ruling consistent with the law and not their own personal views. First off, let me just ask, do you think most detainees at Guantanamo Bay were, were mostly terrorists or mostly, I don't know, innocent goat farmers? Senator, it's impossible for me to answer that question. The people at Guantanamo Bay had been um, accused by the government of engaging in terrorist activities and therefore classified um, by the executive branch as um, enemy combatants. Okay. Do you think it would, America would be safer or less safe if we released all the detainees at Guantanamo Bay? S Senator. I'm, I'm trying to figure out how to answer that question. Um, 9-11 was a terrible attack on our country and the executive branch pursuant to authority that the Supreme Court said it had designated people as enemy combatants and um, sent them to Guantanamo Bay. The Supreme Court also said that anybody who was so detained could seek review of their detention. And as a federal public defender, my uh, role and responsibility um, was to um, make arguments in defense of the Constitution and in service to the court that was trying to assess, based on the authority given to it by the Supreme Court, whether or not people were adequately classified, what the legal circumstances were, how these habeas petitions were going to be processed, this was a, a series of um, a series of legal challenges in a novel environment 
that federal public defenders and lawyers across the country were engaged in helping the court to evaluate so that we can understand what the Constitution required in this time of emergency. Okay, so, so no opinion on whether America would be safer or less safe if we released all the detainees from Guantanamo Bay. Senator, okay. America would be less safe if we don't have terrorists out running around attacking this country. Absolutely. America would also be um, more safe in a situation in which all of our constitutional rights are protected. This is the way our scheme works. This is how the Constitution that we all love um, operates. It's, it's about making sure that the government is doing what it's supposed to do in a time of crisis. As Justice Gorsuch said, the Constitution is not suspended in times of crisis. The government still has to follow the rules. And so criminal defense lawyers make sure that in times of crisis, the government is following the rules. Okay, let's turn to the actual cases. Um, how many of these terrorists at Guantanamo Bay did you represent? When I was a defender, um, four cases were assigned to me in our office. I don't know how many cases came into the office in total, but... Um, but you personally had four? I was assigned to them along with another defender who worked on the same cases. She was more senior. She did a lot of, she did all of the sort of fact uh, gathering related to the cases. And as an appellate defender, I worked on the legal arguments. Okay. Did you ever represent uh, any of the detainees at Guantanamo Bay when you were not a public defender? One of the people who I'd represented while I was in uh, a federal defender, his case got spun off and taken up by a law firm. Law firms around the country were also engaged in this work. I'm well at aware the time. of what law firms were doing at the time. Yes. And I left the Federal Public Defender's Office. I joined a law firm, and the one of the people that I had represented was now at that law firm. They had him as a client. That's Mr. Al Salwam. Al Katani. Al Katani was the one. Was the one who just the, coincidentally, both he and you went to Morrison and Forrester. Yes, Senator. Okay. What about Mr. Al Salwam? I don't know what happened to Mr. Al Salwam. You were listed as counsel for two years during your time at Morrison and Forrester. What happens is when you leave, um, when you leave from any place, firms or government service, um, you have to let the court know or their records, their records reflect where you are in the system and not so much the case in terms of your address. So, in, so to go back to Mr. Al-Qahtani, yes. so he just coincidentally, it's a small world, went to Morrison and Forrester at the same time you did and then you represented him and you did file multiple motions on his behalf. So I don't know if it was at the same time. I'm not sure. But you did file multiple motions for him in 2008 and 2009. I don't recall whether it was multiple, but he was still at the habeas stage of the process. Um, 
And I don't know when he came because the partners who picked up the case were in Los Angeles. I was in Washington, D.C. They contacted me to say, oh, we see on the docket that you had previously represented him and now you're with our firm. Will you assist us um, with um, looking at these briefs, working on these briefs? There were many lawyers who were working on uh, the filings that you're talking about. After you left the public defender's office, did, did you continue in your representation of any other client you had had at the public defender's office? Um, I didn't continue my representation of any client. I left the federal public defender's office and then picked up Mr. Al-Qahtani um, through the circumstances that I talked uh, about, and there were no other clients that um, I represented in that way. I have to say, that sounds like continuation. You represented him at the public defender's office, and then you represented him in private practice as well. And you're telling us that's the only person you represented at both the public defender's office and in private practice? Um, yes. So you didn't continue to provide any kind of pro bono work for murderers or rapists or anyone else, but you did continue to represent this terrorist at Guantanamo Bay? When I got to the firm and they told me that the case was there and they recognized that I was at the firm and had previously worked on the case, and by they I mean the partners in the firm. They asked me um, as a member of the Supreme Court and appellate group of the firm, which is where what was my practice, if I would help review and work on some of the briefing that they were submitting um, on his behalf, given my familiarity with the case. Were you representing him pro bono at Morrison and Forrester? The firm the firm takes on pro bono representations, which means um, that the person isn't paying. And let's turn to your amicus briefs. Uh, you had two briefs in Guantanamo cases: one for a think tank, one on behalf of a group of former judges. Uh, I think, as anyone who's done amicus work knows, sometimes the client seek out the lawyer, sometimes the lawyer seek out the client. Um, for either of those amicus briefs, were you involved in any way in seeking or recruiting those clients or suggesting the idea for an amicus brief in the first place? No, Senator. Were both of those briefs done on a pro bono basis? Um, yes, because the Supreme Court and appellate group in a, a law firm um, has paid clients and also has pro bono clients. And the briefs that I worked on um, were... On the one brief was 20 former federal judges who wanted to make an argument in the Boumidian case that was in the Supreme Court, and one of them um, was a partner at my law firm. She was a former federal judge whose idea it was, and she knew the other judges and wanted our group to work on the brief. The other um, was um, not just one think tank. It was the Cato Institute, the Rutherford Institute, and... Uh, the Constitution Project, an ideologically diverse group of nonprofits who wanted to make uh, arguments in another case that the Supreme Court had taken up related to these issues, because all of this was novel, and a lot of issues were being evaluated by the Supreme Court regarding the scope of executive authority during this time of crisis. Okay, so you, you've done pro bono work for, on behalf of detainees at Guantanamo Bay. Have you ever done pro bono work for the victims of terrorism? Senator, I'm not a, aware of any such cases in um, 
in my law firm. I was in a group of lawyers um, that was often approached to ask, would you file a brief for some group? And I'm not aware that any victims of terrorism uh, asked our firm to participate. Okay. So we've talked a lot about the people you represent. Let's talk a little bit about the defendants in those cases and how you characterize them. Uh, I'll remind you that those were the president, the secretary of defense, and active duty army officers. Senator Graham and Senator Cornyn said that you called them war criminals. You disputed that, and Senator Durbin has repeatedly denied it as well. Uh, and I'll concede you didn't use those exact words. You didn't say war criminals. But you did say in multiple court filings that they committed acts that constitute war crimes. I'm sorry, but I got to confess, I don't understand the difference between saying someone is a war criminal and saying they've committed acts that constitute war crimes. So can you explain that difference to me? Yes, I will. Thank you for the opportunity. Um, so when you file a habeas petition under our law, um, you can't file it um, against the United States because of, of sovereign immunity. The way our law works, you have to file it against individual officers in their official capacity. That's the way in which you're able to file a habeas petition. So whoever is the executive at the time becomes the named party in the brief. And a habeas petition is like a complaint in a, in a civil case. It's making allegations um, to begin the litigation about the person's detention. But you, you, judge, official capacity, personal capacity, all that is just a bunch of procedural gobbledygook. These are the people that you said committed acts that constitute war crimes. With respect, is, Senator. I just don't understand the difference between calling someone a war criminal and saying they committed acts that constitute war crimes. With respect, Senator, they were not sued in their individual capacity. We weren't making allegations about those individuals. And in fact, over the course of the case, the names changed. So later on, the habeas petition became against President Obama because he then became the executive for the purpose of the habeas petition. I, I'm so well aware the names wasn't, changed. It probably changed from Bob Gates or from Don Rumsfeld to Bob Gates as well. But they were not the ones in office. They were not the ones who were overseeing the government when you filed these suits and you said they committed acts that constitute war crimes. I just don't, I, I don't understand how you expect this committee to believe that there's a difference between saying someone's a war criminal and saying they committed war crimes. Thank you for the opportunity to explain, Senator. One of the allegations that um, had been publicly reported with respect to the group of people who were in Guantanamo Bay was an allegation concerning the use of torture. And when you make that allegation, you bring it under laws that themselves constitute um, cr the crimes of war. That's the way in which the law works. So if, you, if, you were in a, if you're writing a habeas petition and you say, um, upon information and belief, Mr. Al-Qahtani was tortured, that allegation is made under a law that says that there was a war crime that occurred as a result of that torture, and anyone and you're making that allegation against the United States, but because you can't sue the United States, the actual petition is named in the name of whoever's leading the United States at the time. So later in this, the course of this, it moved from President Bush, Donald Rumsfeld to President Obama. It didn't, it, it's not about the individual. 
It's about the allegation that um, that Mr. Al-Qahtani, upon information and belief, had been tortured um, in the lead up to his detention. Judge, I want to continue where we left off yesterday and try to get, if I can, get to the essence of this tension between judicial power and judicial restraint. Um, you have testified, and stop me if I get this wrong, that judges should stay in their lane. And I think it's fair to say that one of your definitions of staying in your lane is that judges don't make policy. Am I right so far? Yes, that is correct, Senator. Then how do you explain or help me understand the following? We have a judicially created doctrine with no textual basis either in the Constitution or a statute called substantive due process. And through substantive due process, our, our federal courts, let's just narrow it down, the United States Supreme Court has given itself the authority to read into the Constitution unenumerated, unmentioned rights. Not read the Constitution and say, well, there it is, freedom of speech. But these are unmentioned, unenumerated. Isn't that making policy? Senator, the Supreme Court interprets provisions of the Constitution, and there are provisions of the Constitution that require interpretation because they don't um, just on the text in every circumstance answer the question before the court. So due process, what, what does that mean? And the Supreme Court has, the words due process do um, appear in the text of the Constitution, yeah. and the question is what what is covered by that provision? The Supreme but, Court, oh, sorry. I was just going to say, ahead. but when they do it, aren't they making policy? Well, Senator, um, the role of the judiciary is to interpret the law to the extent that somebody argues to the court um, that there's been a violation of the due process clause of the Constitution, um, it is within the role of the court to determine what that means, whether the person is correct that what happened with respect to their case violated the due process clause. And so there's an interpretive function um, that is a part of the judicial function. Make the road New York versus 
McClellan. You remember that one? I do. Yeah. Here, here's the way I read it. Congress, we, in a rare moment of consensus, gave DS, DHS the sole and unreviewable, those are not my words, they're in the statute, the sole and unreviewable right to determine when illegal immigrants should be removed on an expedited basis. The Department of Health of uh, uh, Homeland Security, taking this statute, decided to use its sole and unreviewable authority or discretion to state that we're going to have expedited removal of all illegal immigrants who've been in the U.S. less than two years. And you said no. And not only that, but you issued a universal injunction. And I don't understand why. You talked about judicial activism, and I don't see how clear Congress could have been. Now, the D.C. Circuit reversed you, but I'm, I want to hear your reasons for, for issuing that nationwide injunction. Thank you, Senator, for allowing me to uh, address that decision in that case. The statute at issue gave discretion to DHS to determine the amount of time that a person needed to have been in the country between zero and 24 months in order to be subject to expedited removal as opposed to the normal removal process in the immigration system. Mm -hmm. The statute said that DHS had sole discretion, meaning no I interpreted, meaning no other uh, agency was to have the authority to make that determination. And the statute said that DHS's determination in that regard was unreviewable, meaning it was final. Once, this is how I'm, I'm interpreting, um, meaning that once the decision was made, it was over. Nobody else gets to review, the court doesn't get to say, um, no, you're wrong if you pick 12 months, for example, or 16 months or 24 months, as they did in this case. The statute did not speak to whether Congress intended with that grant of very broad discretion to exclude another statute that Congress has passed that directs agencies when Congress gives them discretion, it the other statute, the APA, directs agencies as to how they go about making decisions that Congress has given them the authority to make. The APA is a procedural statute. It says to agencies, when Congress gives you discretion to make a determination, you have to do so in a way that's not arbitrary and capricious. You have to use your expertise. Right. In certain kinds of decisions, you have to use notice and comment in order to get information. It's procedural. The claim that was being made in this case, as I read it and understood it, was not that the agency couldn't pick 24 months. Because obviously, Congress had said in the statute, you can pick between zero and 24 months. The claim that was being made is that the agency picked 24 months arbitrarily. 
in violation of Congress's direction about how you go about the exercise. APA was violated? Yes. The claim was an APA violation. So no one was saying that the statute was violated in the sense that the agency did something that it couldn't have done per the statute, picking 24 months. They said the APA was violated because, this is the claim that they were making. Sure. Because the agency did no analysis, the agency did no expertise, the agency did not evaluate, okay, if you've been here six months, these are the kinds of ties that you have. If you've been here 18 months, right? The agency didn't do anything. Essentially, according to the claimants, the agency heard the president say, we're going to now do 24 months when everybody else, all of the other administrations up to this I'm point. Because I've only got two. Yes, points. I'm sorry. All right. As, as I, so, what I hear you saying is, tell me if I'm wrong. Yes. They, they didn't follow the APA, in your opinion, which you have to do even though Congress passed the statute. Is that well, what? no, because two things. One is the APA under DC, longstanding D.C. Circuit case law is presumptively applicable to every situation in which an agency is exercising its discretion. So that's the first thing. It's always there as a background rule. So the DC Circuit has said Congress has to be pretty clear when it decides to exclude the APA, when it's saying I'm giving you discretion, but you can do this arbitrarily, you can do it however you want. And in other places in the immigration statute that sets up expedited removal, Congress says we are excluding the APA. We're telling you that with respect to this kind of discretion, the APA doesn't apply. So here I had these two statutes, and there are canons of statutory interpretation that says that you should try to give effect to all of the will of Congress. You should try to read statutes so that they go together in a way if you have these two directives. And there's also D.C. Circuit case law. Judge, I got to stop you. All right. Because I got it. <laughs> and, and 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 let me just say, I agree that the D.C. Circuit reversed me. They disagreed with my interpretation, and that's the way that our system works. The Supreme Court only hears a tiny fraction of all federal appeals. That means that the cases that get to the Supreme Court are typically either new questions of law or very difficult questions of law. And I think the intersection of law and technology is one where many cases are both new and difficult. Over the, set, over the course of human history, innovation has constantly disrupted our culture and our norms. And for the most part, with good intentions, but societal benefits have not always been the result of innovation. Innovations have challenged us to respond with new means of safeguarding basic rights, whether in the context of privacy, security, competition, employment, just to name a few. And I appreciate that the speed of innovation will always challenge our ability to keep the law up to date with new technologies and their impact. I've grappled with this question as a city council member, as a state senator, as a secretary of state, and now as United States senator. But clearly, it's also a challenge for the courts which often have to decide cases during that period between technological progress and the enactment of new laws that seek to account for that progress. Now, new technology uh, alone has given rise to a number of fundamental questions of law, 
as you mentioned yesterday and earlier, including how the Fourth Amendment applies to new contexts that no founder could have ever contemplated. And likewise, the court has to grapple with questions like how copyright law applies to computer code, and in the coming years, new technologies will present new questions, not just in the context of the Fourth Amendment, but in areas of communications, energy, transportation, healthcare, and many others. So if you can take just a minute, Judge, to uh, discuss the challenges that courts at every level face in addressing cases involving new and emerging technologies and how you, as a Supreme Court justice, would begin to prepare for these types of cases. Thank you, Senator. Um, the court does get cases that involve disputes uh, that touch on technological innovation, um, whether it is something like uh, copyright uh, kind of case or a patent kind of case or um, the Fourth Amendment search and seizure. Um, new technologies do intersect with what, um, what the law says in the Constitution and in statutes. And at least as far as statutes are concerned, um, it's certainly much easier for judges who are doing their duty to interpret the law if Congress makes changes that update the statutes to track um, the modern innovations. What happens with uh, constitutional interpretation is similar to what um, I described earlier about cases in which the court uh, analogizes back to the time of the founding concerning the principles in something like search and seizure, what qualified as a search uh, that violated the Constitution when those words were written, and then uh, determines whether that same kind of violation is at issue with respect to the technology today. And the court has done that um, with respect to searches regarding cell phones, um, police access to GPS data, um, tracking technology that is put on um, uh, vehicles, because these disputes do come up. And so, um, so I'll take this opportunity to encourage Congress to help us um, by um, ensuring that new technologies are addressed in statutes uh, that we interpret. A very brief question uh, on the not lighthearted but important subject of war powers. Um, I reviewed some of the comments that prior nominees have made when asked about questions with respect to the allocation of war powers between the legislative and executive branches. And something that I've seen in, in some of those transcripts has been a tendency to say, well, these are disputes between the political branches, and questions about those authorities should be resolved between the political branches. I noted in the McCann opinion that you issued. You noted in that case that one of the reasons it was appropriate for the judiciary to consider the claim made by the U.S. House in that case was that where there is a dispute between the legislative and the executive, 
in that case, and perhaps in many cases, the judiciary is precisely the appropriate forum for the resolution of that dispute. And so it, it seems to me that the court and, and, and you, should you be confirmed, uh, may very well have to entertain cases and controversies pertaining to disputes between the legislative and the executive with respect to war powers because there is, in my opinion, unsettled law. Uh, there's some ambiguity in statute. The Constitution allegates, allocates various authorities to the two branches. So not asking you to uh, posit a, a thesis on this point, but just want to ask you how you will approach such cases. I assume applying the methodology that you have laid out for us consistently throughout these hearings where war powers uh, may come before the court. Thank you, Senator. Um, in, in every case, um, I apply the methodology that I have laid out um, in order to ensure that I'm ruling uh, impartially and um, consistent with my judicial authority. In the part of my methodology that addresses my judicial authority, one of the things that I do, as judges do, is decide whether I have jurisdiction to hear a particular issue. The McGann case was not a war powers case. Um, the McGann case, I determined in that opinion, and um, Judge Bates had determined in the prior opinion, raised a question of law. The question essentially was whether the subpoena that had been issued by the House had to be responded to by uh, the person who received it or whether that person had absolute immunity and did not have to respond. That's a question of law that courts answer all the time with respect to the enforceability of subpoenas. In the war powers realm, there may be questions of law that are appropriate for courts to decide, um, but there may also be political questions. And so it would depend, a political question, if, if there was a dispute between the legislature and the executive branch over some exercise of authority that was not governed by law, but was in the discretion of either of those branches under the Constitution where they got to make determinations, something, say, for example, like the exercise of executive authority in war to move troops or do that kind of thing, that would not present a question of law that the court could decide. So it would depend on exactly what the court was being asked to do as to whether or not it had jurisdiction. And in, under my methodology, that would be the kind of thing that I would have to carefully examine in order to determine whether I could uh, rule. Thank you, Judge. Lawfare No Bull is produced in cooperation with the Brookings Institution and Goat Rodeo. You can support Lawfare's suite of podcasts by joining our Patreon at www.patreon.com slash lawfare. That's www.patreon.com slash lawfare. You should rate and review Lawfare No Bull wherever you found us and you should share us on all the social medias. And as always, thanks for listening.